Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough. So today we're joined by Peter Ruff, uh, Senior Fellow of the Hudson Institute. Peter, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I guess it was February 24th when Russia invaded Ukraine. And I think the most surprising thing for everyone has been the resilience of the Ukrainian people. Sort of the additional story is one that we want to explore with you is the reaction of Europe, reaction of NATO, uh, and just how surprised that has been. Could you, just to kind of get us started, would you sort of take us back to, you know, February 24 and walk us through what the response has been from Europe, particularly Germany, sort of the changes in their policy towards uh, defense spending, energy, and so forth. I mean, there's going to be a lot to unpack, but but it's just sort of uh, kick off with what, what sort of has transpired with Europe's reaction to the invasion of Ukraine. I think there were probably three surprises I would expand on the resilience of the Ukrainian people to also include, at least from the vantage point of many Europeans, the fact that Putin decided to pull the trigger after all and go for really the maximalist scenario, which is a full-fledged invasion of Ukraine. And then second, um, that the Russian armed forces have struggled so mightily in Ukraine. Those, I think, are three of the highlights, at least, from the opening weeks of the war. Uh, And then I would say that uh, your point about the resilience of the Ukrainian people, the heroism of President Zelensky, which I think at this point is uncontested, is sort of in a symbiotic relationship with the Europeans um, and the United States, for that matter. We were not going to support the Ukrainians if they were unwilling to fight. um, And Ukrainians are unable to fight without the support of the West. And so I think the two have fed each other in a virtuous cycle. On the eve of the war, um, the ghosts of the Afghan National Army, I think, were looming over a lot of Europeans and the United States. We felt burned by their collapse last August. And so to support an outfit and back what amounts to a proxy force in Ukraine against the Russians was only going to work if they performed well. So I think that's the opening condition. Um, Because the Europeans were so surprised by this move, it really shattered, I think, many of their worldviews. I mean, one worldview after another came tumbling down. When we last spoke on this podcast, the Germans were very much so uh, seized by Ostpolitik, or the politics of the East, which goes back to the Cold War era, where trade with the Russians would build a mutual dependency and uh, have a stabilizing effect on Russia. In a sense, you would bind them through economic exchange um, and thereby channel them to sort of more more peaceful uh, decisions. And because that's been been shattered, um, it's forced them to reassess everything from defense spending to um, to their energy policy. Of course, in defense terms, they were not pacifists. They were spending still 50 to 60 billion euros a year, but um, procurement was bad. The state of the Bundeswehr, the German uh, military was in, was in tatters. And, um, and Germany, of course, has become wholly dependent on, on uh, Russian uh, gas in particular, but energy writ large. Yeah. So I want to talk about all that, but actually let's go back to the first surprise, which is the decision to invade to begin with. Why do you think Putin did that? What, like, what's his reasoning? What are his aims um, to the extent that um, that we know what they are? Well, I thought he was going to go in for some time because if you looked at um, the military buildup he launched in the spring, the West reacted to that. <clears throat> but it took it as another event and a long series of sort of Putin-esque provocations. And so then when he uh, built up again in the in the fall... I think he thought that hopefully this would just be seen as another sort of normal event. And basically, Putin got caught out by American intelligence, which ran to NATO, 
uh, rang the alarm bells, briefed its allies, gave the press, the major American media outlets, data and info on the fact that the Russians were building up. And so then I think Putin decided, having already um, thought he was gonna, going to go in, to basically run a diplomatic process to get him to invasion day. And the reason I think we could assume that even at the time was because the demands the Russians were making of the West were so absurd and so maximalist that no administration would be able to meet them uh, without basically disassembling the security architecture in Europe. And so the Biden administration did bend over backwards to meet some of the Russian demands, but um, but it could only go so far without you know truly crossing our own red lines. And so um, uh, I think that at that point it was obvious that Putin was 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 unwilling to really come to a negotiated conclusion, but wanted to go in to meet his maximalist aims. And those aims are, are basically to make Ukraine a satrapy, a proxy. Um, I don't know that he wanted to annex it and bring it into the to the Russian Federation in the Soviet style, um, uh, Soviet style direct governance of the country. But like in Belarus, where he has sort of an obstreperous ally, Lukashenko, um, I think he wanted to have a pro-Russian leader installed um, that was dependent dependent on, on his goodwill and thereby to unite the Slavic peoples, Belarus, Kazakhstan as another uh, country in his sights and Ukraine. But but even more than that, I think um, push out into, into kind of Eastern Europe where he could have a security zone, a sphere of influence, if you will. And of course, part of the reason we're at a loggerheads with him is that our basic ideas of order, since going dating back to 1989, when President George H.W. Bush gave a famous speech in Mainz, Germany, we talked about countries independent and sovereign being able to make their own choices on who they wish to align with, the type of system of government they want. And that clashes with with Putin's concept of a sphere of influence. I've seen some explanations of of the invasion saying that that effectively this is that Putin's was angry that Ukraine was uh, attempting to join NATO. Is that a a, a correct view of what prompted the war? Uh, and is that is that a valid uh, cause for an invasion? Well, as an explanation, I would say that he sought to leverage the so-called Minsk Accords, which were the diplomatic solution the Germans and the French negotiated in 2014-2015 after his annexation of Crimea and first intervention into eastern Ukraine. Uh, He sought to leverage that as a means to get a veto over all of Ukraine. And so uh, in the Minsk Accords, the eastern Donbass region was to be given some autonomy. And his thinking was, through that autonomy, I can essentially exercise a veto on Ukraine's future orientation. But what actually developed over the previous eight years is that uh, Minsk did not really go all that far, and the Ukrainians steadily drifted towards uh, the West. They'd already sort of made that choice in 2014, which is why he intervened. And uh, you could see Ukraine choosing its uh, its future in the Western camp. So um, I, I think that's an explanation, but it's not a justification. I mean, the, the extreme version of the argument that I think you're alluding to is that NATO enlargement to the east provoked the Russians. But, you know, I mean, in 1997, we signed what's called the NATO-Russia Founding Act. And the promises we made in there were to have no permanent troops stationed in the new members of NATO, not to deploy nuclear weapons, uh, not to deploy offensive systems. And in return, the Russians would refuse it or would not threaten any uh, any member of NATO, really any third country, let alone uh, go to war. So uh, we've, we really kept by that promise and by that pledge, even after the 2014 annexation of Crimea, I mean, we put rotational troops into the Baltics, but not permanent troops. 
Um, and uh, and now the Russians have torn that to shreds altogether. So look, I mean, NATO is a defensive alliance. I, I just think it's hard to argue otherwise. I don't see Lithuanians marching on St. Petersburg anytime soon or Poland thrusting towards Moscow with like a tank uh, division. So um, I, I don't think it really uh, carries much water and it's hard to hard to say it's a legitimate argument. Now in the context of the uh, of the actual invasion and, and now we're uh, we're approaching a month into the war. Talk a little bit about the the the, the reaction of Europe, um, in particular. You know, you've already talked about, and, and you even alluded to the fact that we, and the prior your prior appearance on the, the show, that you talked about this Ostpolitik. Talk a little bit about how significant a this commitment of Germany to spending two percent of the GDP on. Uh, defense spending. Talk about how significant that is, both from a you know from a defense spending, a military strategy perspective, but also what's that doing internally to German politics? I mean, I, I, this has to be a, a giant shift in um, in policy, and is the is the public supporting that? Well, the first um, to your point about the reaction of Europe, I think part of the reason why Europe's so seized by this is because we're living in an era really of. Uh, of, of social media vignettes, if you will. Like short videos are the most impactful communication form out there. And there are thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Ukrainians with phones who have taken short videos or somehow been able to memorialize the brutality with which the Russian kind of operational concept has proceeded, uploaded that on the internet or shared it with people. And it's really, I think, shocked the consciousness or the conscience, I should say, of a lot of Europeans. And so the original sanctions that the U.S. levied were pretty paltry. I mean, we went after, I think, the first sanctions wave was against any U.S. activity in the Donbass, as, as if we're investing in startups in Luhansk or Donetsk. I mean, I doubt, I doubt that really hit all that many people. But the pressure has grown both on us here in the U.S., but also on European governments as people have been horrified by the images coming out of it. And so, you know, just as... Uh, just as the Arab Spring was sort of the, uh, the the first wave of of let's call it like Facebook organizing and social media, and the war in Iraq was sort of dominated by the satellite era. Today's really kind of the social media war, and so I think that's been like a huge, huge, um, huge element of this. I mean, the Ukrainians have absolutely crushed the Russians in information operations, and I suppose it helps to have a, a former actor um, uh, at the head of the government. I mean, he's pitch perfect for the moment. As for the the Germans, um, I'd say a couple of things. There's uh, it's a, it's a huge shift in the German psyche. It has broad support um, in polling, uh, so the German public seems to be supporting the uh, plans of the government. And the government, of course, is led by the Social Democrats, and the Social Democrats are are the outreach party to Russia. This is part of their DNA, part and parcel of who they are. So it's it's a huge deal. Um, I, I would just say, you know, the one thing the the, the two cautionary tales I would have or two cautionary points. One is when you suddenly invest a huge amount of money, the system has to be able to absorb it. And um, I think from procurement reform, which is a big problem in the German defense system, I mean, their their procurement agency in Koblenz is, is known, kind of notorious to be rather inefficient and, and poorly, poorly run. Um, you know, being able to not just now amongst the think tank community complain about German defense spending, but actually help them figure out what to spend it on is, is a first step. Um, and then in terms of its um, longevity, I mean, this is a, a sh- kind of a shattering moment, as I said, for Europe, but we want to be able to sustain this. It's a perishable good, this German shift. And so 
locking it in through budget cycles and over promises, I think is really important to get Europe on the record so that it does rebuild and and doesn't um, in a matter of, you know, a few years retreat. I mean, given how badly the Russians have performed, you can imagine some concluding, well, maybe the Russians aren't that dangerous to us. Yes, they're willing to go to war, but they can't do all that much damage. And so maybe we shouldn't spend as much money. I think it's important to push back against that. As for just kind of one meta point about the strategic implications of this, this is hugely important for the U.S. because if the Europeans can actually take charge of their own security, that frees us up for the defense of Taiwan, for more uh, focus on the Indo-Pacific. We can actually execute the pivot that we've been talking about going back all the way to the Obama era. I, I did want to ask about that because just in terms of, you know, the what what is the purpose of NATO? And there's a there's a famous so there's a famous old quote from I think it's Lord Ismay or some British general who was like the head of NATO and he said that that NATO has three purposes to keep the Russians out, the Americans in and the Germans down, right? So one of the purposes uh, is we're going to have this military alliance. And so Germany doesn't have to have like be militarized and, and like have a strong military because we're going to kind of take over that role. Now it kind of seems like that's flipped. And now we, we're encouraging Germany and other countries to beef up their militaries. Uh, I mean, is that is that kind of like uh, the new vision for NATO? What sort of like long-term implications does that have for America's role in NATO and the, in the continent? Yeah, I mean, I think the U.S. always plays the stabilizing role in Europe. It's sort of removed the power equation from the continent. And so these countries have been able to grow together and cooperate and, um, and work with one another, knowing full well that no dispute is going to spiral out of control to the point of a military conflict. And by that, I don't mean the Russians here, but um, the members of, of continental Europe to the west of Russia. So any Portuguese-Spanish disputes likely to be settled in a court or in some sort of negotiation, not uh, through through uh, um, the, the use of force. And the U.S. is the one that has removed power from the continent by acting as that large stabilizing hegemon and allowed for that process to unfold. I think the U.S., just because of its latent power, even if it isn't present in large numbers itself on the continent because it has responsibilities elsewhere, and by that I primarily mean deterring China, uh, will still be able to play that um, that that lead that leadership role, I think. But there is a shift, like you're alluding to, and I'm not sure that that uh, statement is of of the first NATO Secretary General really applies anymore. Radoslav Sikorski is the Polish former Polish um, defense minister, now member of European Parliament, famously said in the speech a few years ago that Europe doesn't uh, fear German um, power anymore; it fears the absence of it. Um, and so I think that it would welcome Germany embedded in a broader NATO construct and even in the EU construct, building up its forces to help provide security. Talk about, if you will, the the current pipelines between Russia and, say, Germany. Uh, and also, I know that there was one of the uh, the Nord Stream through it was, was recently canceled. Tell us a little bit about what the current status is, how dependent has Germany been, and then how is this all changing? So Germany gets, um, I should say Europe gets um, its natural gas from, from, from Russia through three major pipeline systems. Um, the first is the Nord Stream pipeline, which travels from Russia through um, the Baltic Sea to, to Germany. Um, Nord Stream 1 is operating at capacity and um, uh, has been online for, for years. That deal was really struck, I think, in the waning days of Schroeder's time in office or maybe just shortly thereafter. 
in Nord Stream 2, which was to run parallel to Nord Stream 1, has been completed. So it physically rests on the seabed, but it has not been uh, brought into operation. And the Nord Stream parent company, based out of Switzerland, which was to help push for um, Nord Stream 2 to come online, just declared bankruptcy because the US and um, uh, threatened sanctions and the Germans basically gave up the political leadership on the project. The second is, is the Yamal pipeline, which runs through um, Belarus and Poland um, and into, into Central and Western Europe. And then the third is, um, is the Brotherhood pipeline, which runs through Ukraine. Part of the reason why there was such a debate over the Nord Stream pipeline is because Nord Stream 2 would allow the Russians essentially to shut down its Ukraine pipeline. Um, so Ukraine itself would lose the transit fees, which it collects, which are in, you know, in the magnitude of billions annually. And secondly, it would just make U Ukraine less geopolitically relevant. It was unclear that the Europeans would really ride to the rescue of Ukraine because all of a sudden it loses its uh, its 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 role as a, as a transshipment uh, point for Russian gas, and um, uh, and it would allow uh, Russia to try to split Eastern and Western Europe by bypassing Eastern Europe. It could send just enough gas, for example, to Germany through the two Nord Streams to satisfy that, that major industrial economy but not enough for onward uh, passage to say uh, the Eastern European states. And so there was a fear that a lot of the, uh, a lot of the connectors from uh, Western Europe to Eastern Europe um, that are supposed to diversify Eastern European energy, Northern, Western European energy is much more diversified I should add, than Eastern European energy. And a lot of that infrastructure would be so flooded by Russian gas that it would atrophy. No one would, would invest in it. No one would push for new for new um, uh, modes of supplying Eastern Europe. And so you'd make them both dependent and more vulnerable um, to Russia. So um, uh, Germany is by far the most dependent um, of the major economies in, in, in Europe on Russian energy, uh, in particular, Russian natural gas. And there's been a robust debate in Germany on whether or not they can cut themselves off of this gas. Some economists are saying yes. Um, there have been a few interesting papers published to that effect, but the political leadership doesn't want to take that step because they're already in an inflationary moment. They've taken the gut punch from COVID, and um, and now comes a major land war just a few hours flight from their border. And so to additionally cut off energy would be pretty painful. The U.S. took the step of cutting off its own oil imports from Russia, but those are a much smaller part of our energy mix than Russian oil and gas is to to Germany. There are some smaller states like Hungary, which have a huge dependency on Russian gas. But, you know, we should think of those states as almost like economic supply systems to the German economy. I mean, uh, in Austria and Hungary, something like every eighth or 10th job depends on the German economy. And so um, they're very dependent, but really the center of gravity is, is Germany. And to date, you know, the Russians have managed to, to keep um, those energy flows going. So on a daily basis, it's something depending upon these huge fright, uh, price increases. But it began, I think, in the first 24 hours after the war that, that the U.S. and Europe sent $700 million uh, to Russia for the purchase of gas, oil, and also minerals and metals, um, so commodities. And uh, now I think I saw a statistic from the other day that it was something over a billion. I don't know how that's been affected by the U.S. cutoff, but you get the point. I mean, uh, while we're trying to sanction Russian banks and, and make them a pariah of the international financial system, including blocking the central bank, which is a huge step, in the next breath, we're still fueling Putin's war machine by sending him hundreds of millions of, uh, of dollars or euros daily in, uh, in, in payment for um, Russian gas or oil. And, and maybe at the risk of going on too long, um, one idea has been to, to, I think, as we might have done with the Venezuelans, 
to put funds into frozen accounts and in return still take shipment. But of course, there's no reason to think Putin would continue to provide energy if we if we put money into accounts he can't access. Talk a little bit about what else is going on in energy, because if I'm not mistaken, uh, Germany has approved uh, a sort of fast track, is my understanding, uh, the, uh, the construction of two LNG plants, uh, but, but at the same time has uh, not um, approved the extension of, I don't know if it's one or more nuclear plants. Can you sort of explain what, what's, what's actually happening and then what the thought process is there? So um, Germany is governed by a coalition of, of social democrats. So think of like labor, right, in the traditional sense, or um, sort of uh, of of, um, of a, a union, a union dominated, um, a social democratic party. Um, second in the coalition are the free democrats, who are sort of libertarians and free marketeers, and then third are the greens. And um, the Social Democrats are the largest. The Greens uh, just nudged out the, the Free Democrats, the Libertarians, as, as the second uh, biggest member of the coalition. And part of the price of admission um, to the coalition, part of what the Greens insisted on was a phase out from um, nuclear. So several um, reactors have been shut down and they're to be phased out by the end of this year. And then secondly, um, a, a slow phase out of coal. Um, and the dates have varied on that. Uh, I don't have them in, in the back of, back of my mind. I want to say by the end of this decade, I think 2028 was a target date initially for the Germans to get out of out of coal. Um, and um, as you can imagine, for the Greens, you know, coal is is um, is just uh, the equivalent of what a progressive climate activist thinks of of Mitch McConnell's Kentucky coal mines in the United States. Just absolute a no go. And yet. After the invasion of Russia, so was Germany rattled that um, uh, um, Robert Habeck, he's the vice chancellor and the head of the economics ministry, he's a green, uh, the, really the de facto leader, we could say, of the party, uh, said we have to rethink about whether or not to extend coal. Um, and, and so, so that was a major step. Nuclear is like a really hot button issue in, in Europe, and uh, it's a visceral issue. It's a very, very politicized one. And um, it's it's really hard to get majorities for nuclear in 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 Europe. Um, Germany was a nuclear country until Fukushima took place, and then Merkel reversed um, policy almost overnight and said that uh, Germany needed to get out of nuclear. So um, so that was a that was a that was the next step. And there have been regularly going back to the Temelin um, nuclear reactor in the Czech Republic, huge protests in like neighboring Austria, for example. So. It's really the third rail of, of, of a lot of European politics. So the Greens want to get to renewables and almost uh, some critics would charge want to deindustrialize the country. I mean, they really want to get to wind, solar and these other uh, energy mixes. But uh, just looking at some of the data, like what decent Krupp requires um, in annual energy, um, what some of these other manufacturing heavyweights like VW and others, Siemens required to run their, their operations and their plants, it's just it's just a huge number. I mean, I don't know if you can build that many windmills. So, um, you know, the real question is, how do you transition to this green future? Um, and um, uh, and is it is it possible without doing great damage to your own economy? And now the, the Greens have, have seized on the um, the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, to float extending coal, but really to, radic to radically accelerate the, the green transition. So it'll be a very expensive prospect for Germany. And of course, as we know, some of the major pr products like lithium batteries, 
um, uh, solar panels are are markets that the Chinese have cornered, rare earths, and so it might it might end up also increasing the German reliance on China. So there's a lot of dynamics at play here, but it's it's really an A1 newspaper above the fold topic right now in Germany. So there there have been uh, related to that. Uh, I think there have been some statements by some NATO offic- officials, others that. Um, Russia may have been like funding environmental groups in Europe to try and uh, I don't uh, certainly prevent like uh, their own development of natural gas, maybe also the anti-nuclear stuff to keep Europe dependent on Russian gas. Do you know anything about that? I mean, is that plausible? Is it really just more uh, broader political things that are keep you know that are that are making uh, Germany, anti-nuclear, other countries not wanting to develop their own resources. Well, I mean, for starters, I would say that um, um, that that the Russians are for everybody going for renewables except for themselves, <laughs> right? As a way to to quarter the market in a lot of respects. So they they um, they're all for this, uh, thinking that it's you know basically going to give them a give them a, a, a supply supply dominant position. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if the Russians engaged in that sort of financing. I mean, they've been notorious in conducting these sort of political subversion campaigns going back, uh, going back really years and decades. And there's some great memoirs um, from KGB generals about some of the activities that they uh, that they undertook to try to subvert American society, for example. Or um, and of course, in a recent past, we have plenty of prominent examples of this in Europe. So that wouldn't surprise me. Um, but but I would say it's probably broader than that. I mean, what Russian disinformation or Russian funding tries to do is surf on existing sentiments, and that really is what the most effective propaganda um, propaganda is. It doesn't try to create an entirely new narrative, but tries to redirect and channel existing feelings. And I can tell you that in some of these countries, this nuclear debate is just unbelievably passionate and visceral. Then on the other hand, like the French are a nuclear power, and they're proud of it. And um, and it seems to be a winning argument there. So uh, there was a big debate in the European Union um, recently about how to classify nuclear energy, whether or not it would be considered a green energy or not. And uh, that was a knockdown drag drag out fight, which just shows how 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 uh, sensitive this whole topic is. If you were advising the U.S. government on what what the proper uh, policy should be for dealing with the uh, the Russian invasion. What 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 do you think they're getting right? What do you think that would be the next steps that you would advise, and and what should be avoided at all costs besides obviously nuclear war? Uh, what would be your policy advice? Well, just to pick up the debate where it's at now, I would say, you know, for starters, this is a military conflict in Ukraine, and uh, Putin and the Russians constitute one of our major opponents on the world stage. I mean, they are they are adamantly opposed to the American-led order in Europe and really elsewhere, and they have taken every opportunity at their disposal to poke us in the eye or to diminish American positions from Syria to Libya uh, to West Africa uh, to Georgia and, of course, to Ukraine. And so the Russians are very vulnerable right now and weak in Ukraine, and I would rush anything and everything I could to help the Ukrainians damage uh, the Russians and, 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 and make them regret this invasion every step of the way. Um, I don't think that um, the distinction between, say, a, uh, a, a, a missile like an NLA or a Stinger 
and a fighter jet is a difference in type. I think it's a difference in degree. It's an artificial distinction in my mind. We're already providing military assistance. So I would have no problem uh, supporting uh, that, that transfer, for example. Um, on the other hand, um, I, I think a no-fly zone would make us a co-belligerent or a co-combatant, and I think would be a mistake. In December, President Biden, in front of rolling cameras on the South Lawn of the White House, said that the U.S. wouldn't be sending combat troops into Ukraine, which I suppose could be a sensible policy. We could debate it. But um, the fact that he did so is the assumption in which Putin moved into Ukraine. For us now to join the fight via no-fly zone, and it would require shooting at Russians, essentially, would, um, would, wouldn't cause the Russians necessarily to back down, but would just make us part of kind of the hostilities, and I think would be a mistake. So I'm all for, in a military battle, which is primarily what this is, rushing everything we can to the Ukrainians, supporting them, and, um, and helping to damage the Russians without actually entering uh, conflict as a, as a belligerent itself. I think when you're facing like a great power standoff between the U.S. and Russia, it should be incumbent on, on the other side to fire the first shot at you. And so um, for that reason, I think it would be a mistake to to go in. It doesn't mean that we can't do things like AWAC patrols on the Polish-Ukrainian border, that we can't provide better ISR, um, that that we can't be doing more um, in terms of military transfers. But um, but I wouldn't enter I wouldn't enter the conflict um, itself. On the economic front, um, I would just um, I, I would just continue to hammer hammer away at, at the Russian economy and make this an unpalatable uh, an unpalatable economic prospect for Putin. I think we've done a decent job of that. Uh, the energy cutoff question is much trickier, but um, but in terms of the blocking sanctions on the central bank, on going after some of his um, uh, private banks, which you know, are ostensibly private, but of course are important to the Russian people, so they would feel it as well. Um, all of that, I think, is is uh, is probably good. I guess as a final question, uh, if if one war is not enough, could you tell us a little bit about what just happened in recent days in Erbil? I believe the U.S. consulate was uh, attacked. Um, are we at risk of a broader confrontation with Iran? I mean, I would read that rocket attack in the context of the JCPOA negotiations, which is really the big diplomatic play in the region right now, the big negotiation that governs everything else. Um, the Russians tried to throw a wrench into the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear talks, by making the argument in Vienna that uh, they would like to be exempt from their sanctions. They should be exempted from um, trade with Iran, which is to say they'd like to make Iran a backdoor to, uh, to, uh, to, for them to be able to launder their money and get out from underneath Western sanctions. The U.S. balked at that. The Iranians, um, uh, I think, in probably some frustration, shot ballistic missiles at or missiles at the U.S. to try to um, try to warn us if we don't if we don't come to a conclusion on this deal, then uh, we can up the up the ante and, um, and 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 basically make that argument that you just did, which is we you already have one hand, war on your hands. Do you really want another? Um, agree to sanctions relief, take uh, the terror designations off the IRGC, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, it's a typical Iranian move, which is to just increase the pressure and the threat and chaos unless prepared to meet their demands. So, um, uh, but but I, I generally think um, that um, that the administration is determined to strike a deal in the JCPOA come hell or high water. And so um, I think we're likely to have an announcement, you know, relatively soon. If does the signing the JCPOA actually placate the Iranians or... Or, or, did it, or, or do they just continue to go on the offense? Because when we signed the first deal, the first go round before during the uh, Obama years, before Trump pulled out, 
they didn't exactly sit quietly on the sidelines afterwards. So, um, you know, they'll be flush with cash and it'll be interesting to see. And, and, and you know, just add, of course, it's linked up to the to the Ukraine crisis, too, because the Iranians are sitting on tankers full of of, um, of oil. And they'd like to put that onto, onto the markets. And I'm sure uh, part of the Biden team's calculation is that, you know, it would be great for gas pumps at home heading into the midterms if we could get some more barrels on the market. All right. Well, Peter, thank you again. Uh, it was a pleasure having you again on the show. Thanks, guys. It was great to be with you. I hope that was interesting.